in the wake of the 2008 international financial crisis, German billionaire Adolf Merkel committed suicide. Merkel, age 74, allowed himself to be hit by a train. His family said his losses had broken him. What had the crisis meant for this man? In 2007, Merkel was worth $12.8 billion, according to Forbes. Uh, by December 2008, he was worth a measly $9.2 billion, a loss of $3.6 billion. Merkel slipped from being the 44th richest person in the world to the 96th richest person in the world. Apparently, he could not live with the loss. Now, does this translate to you and me? Well, let's say you're accustomed to an income of 80000 per year, but you lose your job and the best work you can find pays 40000 You're forced to sell your nice home in Ridgefield, move to a trailer park. Thankfully, you're over 55, so you can get in. <laughs> but that's still not going to save you enough. So you also have to sell your tricked-out truck, you know, along with many other things. And now you're struggling to make it from month to month, even without cable TV and nightly DoorDash. Now, maybe you wouldn't be suicidal like Merkel, but I wonder what all of this would reveal about your heart. Do you have your stuff or does your stuff have you? A good question to ask yourself is this, could I be okay if I lost it all but still had Jesus? Let me explain something, and this is the truth. The more you have, the harder it is for you to answer that question with a yes. That's not my idea. It's actually the clear teaching of Scripture. For example, remember the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus over this very question. The Bible actually says it was because he had so much wealth that he walked away. The more you have, the more dangerous what you have is. The more you have, the more it tends to have you. Wealth is a hazard to your heart. This truth is often repeated in the Word of God. Wealth is dangerous by degrees. Today we will continue learning from our rabbi, Jesus Christ, and specifically from his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, picking it up at chapter 6, verse 19. This is just where we've arrived. Listen and hear these words of Jesus. He continues, verse 19, chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
And so I have a question for you this morning. Where do you bank? Personally, I'm with Bank of America because I haven't yet taken the time to change over to something local. And if you must know, I'm with Fidelity and also a firm called Guidestone, which is where I keep my retirement savings. So I guess I have at least three earthly banks. But of course, that's not really what I meant by the question. If a bank is the place where I save or where I invest, none of those banks should be the first thing I think of when asked the question, where do you bank? Jesus clearly shows us that the best place to bank or invest is none other than God's heaven. Maybe that sounds silly because you're thinking, come on, one kind of bank is about money and the other is about spiritual things. To that, I would have to say, wrong. Jesus is plainly talking about laying up treasure in heaven by how we use our money on earth. He's talking about using our material wealth for heavenly purposes, which I must say is not done by banking it here. Frankly, for the most part, anything that you bank here is not being banked there. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying, precisely. So how does a person bank in heaven? Well, Jesus is talking about everything from tithes and offerings to however you may put your money to work in expanding God's kingdom on earth. That's how you bank your money in heaven, by investing it in his kingdom work on earth. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. This is not vague or figurative. Jesus is talking about money and the stuff we own, our wealth. And he's talking about the good we ought to be doing with it before it does something bad to us. Where do you bank? Jesus would say that neither Columbia Credit Union nor Umpqua nor the stock exchange nor a safe in your house nor the stores where you buy stuff should be the primary place where you bank. Again, by bank, I mean where you put your wealth to work. Some of us have nothing in the literal bank because we buy so much stuff. Our money is, in the, is actually in the bank of stuff I already bought. And we just keep buying more. So our stuff is like a bank in this analogy. Wherever you put your money, that's where you bank it. Jesus says the best place to bank your money is in heaven. That is the kingdom of God, the place where his will is done. Remember from last week. It all goes together. Maybe it sounds radical, but the bank of God ought to be the first bank you think of when it comes to financial planning or budgeting. How much do you have saved up in heaven? Is it as much as you have saved up on earth? There should be no comparison, according to Jesus. You should be sending more treasure ahead than you're keeping down here because everything you've got down here could be worthless tomorrow. And by now, sadly, some of you have already checked out. I think I just want your money. When the honest truth is that I couldn't care less about your money. A, I'm already paid enough. B, I won't be paid anymore if you give more. That's not how it works. If I wanted to be paid more, I would have done a lot of things differently when I planted this church from scratch, like not hiring so many staff. 
How about we just pay the pastor more? <laughs> no. that's, that's, that's not it. I'm content. So maybe then I just want your money for the things that it can do for our church. That'd be a better motive. But honestly, that's not what this is about either. This is about discipleship. This is about wanting the sheep of this flock to grow. This is about wanting to bring heaven down to earth by applying the teachings of Jesus, that is to see his truth, transform your life so that you bring glory to God and become the person he wants you to be. This is about letting God's truth make you more like Christ. And for the record, when it comes to the needs of this church, we're in good shape. Dare I say, we have plenty of money. Your finance team probably just passed out in their chairs, but I'll say it again. We have plenty of money. God always supplies our needs. Jesus did not teach what we are studying today in order to make sure the church had what it needed. Why did he teach this then? That's what we're going to talk about. And the first point is this. Number one, saving in the heavenly bank refocuses your vision. Look at verses 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Now, let me briefly give a disclaimer, and some of you are squirming in your seats waiting for me to make this clear. So let me get it out of the way. Yes, it is still a good idea to save some money on earth. I spent five minutes not saying that, and some of you are starting to get bothered. So what about Jesus? What, 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 did, what did he say? Well, if you were to look exclusively at verse 19, the opening of our text, you would hear Jesus say, never save anything on earth at all. And that's what you'd hear, if that's all we looked at. And he tells us why. Jesus says, never save anything on earth because it's fleeting. Thieves can steal it. Moths can, can, can ruin it. Let's, let's just remember for a second the fact that Jesus does, in fact, say the words, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. So without any further study, without looking at the context, ignoring the rest of the Bible, what you might get from this is that you should never save to prepare for the future or, or for any other reason on earth. However, we need to look a little closer to get the whole truth. I'll point out three key facts. First, understand that other verses of Scripture speak of saving money as a wise thing to do. We're also told that it's good to pass on an inheritance, inheritance to those who come behind us. Jesus obviously knows these verses. He does not intend to contradict them. Second, we need to understand the difference between hoarding and saving. When, when, when Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, he's talking about hoarding. We see this in words like store up and treasures, like troves. <laughs> the idea is holding on to money and stuff in excess to the point of finding joy in it, to the point of treasuring it until you take pride in how much you have stockpiled instead of continuing to, to, to depend on God. It's a hard issue. Now, if you think that disclaimer gives you a free pass to basically ignore what Jesus says as long as you're not Bill Gates, think again. As typical Americans, you and I may well be guilty of hoarding 
whether in stuff or in savings. And frankly, as the wealthiest culture ever to exist on earth, all of us better be willing to think through what Jesus is saying. Third, notice the words, for yourselves. It is one thing to save up for yourselves and another thing to save up for the purposes of the kingdom of God. Understand that Jesus is making a comparison. He's saying that there should be no comparison between how much you're investing in the heavenly kingdom and how much you're investing in your own earthly kingdom. But again, I don't think Jesus is prohibiting us from setting something aside for retirement or to pass on an inheritance or to be prepared for a rainy day. All wise things to do according to other passages of Scripture. But let's get back to the first reason this matters in terms of our discipleship. Remember, Jesus is telling us how to follow him. How to be his disciples. He's telling us how to live out the heavenly kingdom on earth, how to bring heaven to earth. He's teaching us as his disciples, which of course means that we are his followers, that one of the things is that we need to be saving in the heavenly bank. And then we do that, it refocuses our vision on heavenly things. Here's how this works. When you invest in God's bank by giving enough into his heavenly kingdom and heavenly work on earth, you, your vision shifts from the temporal to the eternal. What you care about. Again, saving in the heavenly bank refocuses your vision. This, of course, leads quickly to the question of how much. How do I know when it's enough? Well, that would be the point at which your vision shifts from the temporal to the eternal. If your vision is still mostly temporal, earthly, worldly even, then you are not giving enough to the eternal kingdom. Could it be that simple? Jesus taught that nothing has the potential to turn your eyes upward like opening your wallet. When you give substantially to the work of God, you have ownership in the work of God. This is so true. And even more interesting, I found that when people invest enough in the heavenly kingdom, sometimes they even start looking forward to getting there. Think about this. What if you prepared as much for your heavenly retirement as your earthly retirement? What if you invested more in your heavenly future than your earthly future? What if you wound up with more in the bank of heaven than the bank of earth? You think your vision would not be refocused? If you were doing that, what do you think about? What are your dreams? Are they earthly or heavenly? Well, my goodness, Pastor, what do you expect from us? Do me a favor and read the text we've covered so far. Again, verses 19 and 20. Read it, read it for yourself. Take a, take a look at it. Verses 19 and 20. What did Jesus say? Do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. That's what he said, as if it were not possible to really do both. And that's exactly how it works out. We choose. We choose. Let's see what else Jesus says about this. From verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Right smack in the middle of a passage that's about nothing other than giving actual dollars to the heavenly work of God on earth. We have these verses about vision. And what are our options? We can have clear vision filling our lives with light, or we can have bad vision filling our lives with darkness. 
And how does one ensure one's vision is clear and full of light? It's all about where you bank. <laughs> it's about where your treasure is laid up. That's the context here. Jesus is teaching that our vision is clear and full of light when our heavenly investments outweigh our earthly investments. When our treasure and our hearts are in heaven, our eyes are up and we can see the light. If instead our treasures and hearts are on earth, our eyes will be down and our vision will be bad and our lives will be filled with darkness. I say again, saving in the heavenly bank refocuses your vision. Closely related is the second point, which we find in verse 21. Saving in the heavenly bank <clears throat> relocates your heart. It refocuses your vision, but it also relocates your heart. Just before those verses about your eyes, Jesus says, For where your treasury is, there your heart will be also. If this is true, then that means you and I can relocate our hearts by simply relocating our treasure. Really? It's as simple as that? Yes. It's as simple as that. And as difficult as that. Got a heart problem? Give more. What, you mean like money? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Our teacher is always practical in his teaching. He calls for a change of heart, but he tells us exactly how to make the change. To make the change, some of us need to put more than change into the heavenly bank. To really have a heart change, some of us need to change banks. To change your heart, change your giving patterns. Jesus has actually been talking about heart change for a paragraph or two now. Remember the sermon from a few weeks ago, Heart Matters. Really, I'm still preaching that sermon today. It's just a continuation because Jesus is still talking about matters of the heart. And according to Jesus, that not only includes your financial decisions, but it's more like your financial decisions are actually the steering wheel of your heart. Jesus says nothing changes the location of your heart like the location of your treasure. J.R.R. Tolkien makes this point powerfully in his character named Gollum. The precious... The one ring has Gollum's heart. This is so true that in the end he dies protecting in his hand, holding up his treasure above the molten lava for as long as he has breath. The precious, as he calls it, has his heart. See, that's what happens when we value treasures and things as our own. Mine. My precious. And what about the rest of us? What are you afraid to lose? What are you afraid to lose? I say again, the more you have, the more challenging this is. Some of you, some of you, some of you really do have a great deal of wealth. More than others. And I'm genuinely happy for you. As long as your wealth doesn't own you, because that would be sad. But what is your immediate response to the statement, you are wealthy? Defense? Well, I don't have as much as some people. I'm certainly not rich. Okay. So what if you lost everything that's in the earthly bank? What if your investments and savings and stuff was all gone tomorrow? Gone. Would you cry? Understandable. Understandable. 
Understandable. It's understandable if he would cry. Loss, loss is loss. Loss hurts. But how much would you cry? And for how long? Would you find yourself almost embarrassingly sounding like Gollum? The precious. The precious is lost. Death thieves. Filthy little thieves. Oh, this is testy stuff, isn't it? Some of you have things, but not money. You don't have a lot saved because, honestly, you've spent it along the way. Guilty. Maybe you have a house, a camper, a couple cars, a boat. Maybe some nice guns, power tools, some beautiful china, nice jewelry. Maybe a brand new washer and dryer that, uh, that you just really like. Furniture that costs a fortune. We're not talking Ikea, okay? That's not wealth, okay? If you've got Ikea, you're good on this. But is it precious? Is it precious to you? If these treasures were taken from you but later returned, would you jump up and down and dance and celebrate and then fight to keep them with your last breath like Gollum and his ring? Human nature? You better believe it. Normal? Yep. Up to the standards of a Christ follower? Not so much. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where's your heart? Is it in heaven? Are you longing, for, are you longing to join Jesus there? With all your heart, then that's where your treasure is. There's your heart somewhere else, there's your treasure. Wherever you have invested most, that is your precious. That is the place of your heart's desire. That's what matters to you most. Where do you bank? And what if you don't like your own honest answers to these questions? What now? Do you remember uh, what Bilbo did? I know that not all of you are Tolkien fans, but you should be. Okay? And uh, even if you haven't read it or seen the movie, all you need to know right now is that the way Bilbo Baggins got free of the precious ring was to give it up. He opened up his hand and he dropped his treasure to the ground. In fact, he gave it to a higher power to be done with as that higher power saw fit. He trusted Gandalf with his treasure and Bilbo walked away empty-handed. Stepping outside, he took a deep breath of the fresh night air and started on a new journey to a better place. Free from the hold of the precious. Okay, okay, but how much of my treasure do I need to give to the heavenly kingdom before my heart will be there? I do not know. The Bible commands a tithe as a starting point. A tithe is 10%. But we're told that keeping the tithe for ourselves is actually stealing from God, so I don't think really that that's what Jesus is talking about here in terms of treasure in our hearts. He's not talking about 10% here, folks. He's talking about where your treasure really is. I'll put it this way. When you have given enough that you begin to think of every bit of the treasure you have left as being available for God's use whenever and however he leads, then you have given enough for now. 
At the point when your heart is all about his kingdom, then you can know you've given enough precisely because of the location of your heart. When your heart's in heaven and you're focused on heaven's purposes, whatever earthly treasure remains in your hand can now be a blessing instead of a curse. The principle is this. When you save enough in the heavenly bank, you'll have a heavenly heart. But again, how much is enough? You'll know when your heart gets there. That's what I'm saying. And you'll need to work to stay there. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. In other words, the way to solve any heart location problem is simply to give more. Now, by the way, is the church the only place to invest toward God's kingdom? No, it is not. I think biblically, the body of Jesus Christ, the church, ought to be the main place for kingdom investment. But the church is certainly not the only place. We're talking about living your entire life with a heart to invest in God's kingdom work wherever you have opportunity. By the way, what is God's kingdom work? Primarily, it's making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. We call that the Great Commission, and that's what Jesus left his followers here to do. Beyond that, the work of the kingdom is bringing the good and perfect will of heaven to earth, which again is best done by making disciples. Ultimately, kingdom work is seeing that the will of God is done here just as it is in heaven. Back to the point, investing in the heavenly kingdom relocates your heart. I've heard so many testimonies to this truth over the years. In my first church plant, we were able to reach a lot of people who had never been committed to Christ or to his church before. That meant that I had to be the one to teach them, to tithe, to give. Most of the people we were reaching had never heard what the Bible teaches about money. To begin to follow Jesus, they had to radically change their thinking and their behavior. People who had never given started giving substantially. Based on many testimonies, I don't believe they ever regretted it. Significant spiritual growth came almost overnight in some cases. I've never seen anything accelerate spiritual growth more than obedience in giving. That's because nothing relocates a person's heart like relocating their treasure. Jesus taught this, and it's true. It's true. If you've seen this to be true in your life, say amen. amen. I was hoping there'd be a few. Leads to the final point. Saving in the heavenly bank requires a choice. From verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There is no way to water down the words of Jesus here. He draws a line in the sand, throws down a gauntlet, and presents an ultimatum all at the same time. There's no way around this. A choice must be made. A choice will be made. You will either serve God or wealth, but not both. You will love your God or you will love your wealth, but not both. In fact, Jesus actually says that you will hate whichever one of the two you do not love. And that is exactly what happens. Jesus says, if you love and serve God, you will not love or serve your wealth. Indeed, you will hate your wealth by comparison. But if you love and serve your wealth, you will hate God for trying to get some of it. A lot of people hate the church of God for the same reason. But why do you hate your own treasure? Why would you ever 
hate your own treasures, you know? You're precious. How would you ever, how could you ever get to the point of, of hating something that could do so much good and is so empowering? How could you ever come to hate the good things that you consider the blessings of God, your wealth? How do you make yourself hate wealth so that you can love God? Well, you don't. That's not what Jesus said. He said we would need to hate the mastery of wealth, if you look at it. He said we would need to hate the mastery of wealth. Wealth is a great tool and a terrible master, and so what you do is you make sure God is the master of your wealth, which practically means He gets to use it through you. And when that happens, you will love your master all the more, partly because He's keeping you away from slavery to your wealth. But some of you are stuck back at the point of wealth because you don't think you have any. Some are thinking it'd be nice to have this struggle, Pastor. <laughs> but since I have no treasure, no riches, no wealth, this is irrelevant. Well, on the one hand, I might tell you that you are right to be thankful for poverty in some ways, if that's you. Matthew has Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, but Luke actually has it simply blessed are the poor. And quoting Isaiah, Jesus said he came to preach good news to the poor. Why? Because the poor are ready to hear it. Remember, only beggars beg from early in the series. I see this principle at work when I go to Nicaragua or Haiti, the two poorest nations in this hemisphere. There is, in fact, a spiritual blessing in not having wealth. It would seem that faith comes easier to those who have nothing to lose. Maybe that's why it seems like we're always seeing awakening and revival almost everywhere but America and Europe. But regardless, the truth is that there are very few, if any, poor people in this room. According to the United States Census Bureau, the average American income per person in 2012 was estimated at $28,000. Most of you here today are not average wage earners. You're a bit above that. But even that average income is more than 400% higher than the average income of the world as a whole. 400%. Let's try another angle. When comparing to the 56% of the world's population considered to be poor, our average income in the United States is somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000% higher. That's right. The average American at 28,000 per year earns up to 100 times more than the average individual from over half of the rest of the world. Granted, our cost of living is higher as well. But rest assured that the poor 56% of the world never even thought about buying a single hair care product. They never bought shaving cream. They never bought even one lawn chair. They never subscribed to a magazine. And rather than standing on the street corner asking for cash, many of them would be very happy to receive a loaf of bread or a bag of rice. For the majority of the rest of the world, the very thought of spending $5 on a coffee drink even once would be similar to you or me going out and buying a yacht. That's how far out of reach it is for them. They aren't too worried about gas prices because most of them don't even know anyone who has a car. For us, frugality is spending $25 on a meal for our family at Wendy's where the $5, the five for $5 deal is still the best thing out there. Cheapest way to eat. But $25 is a pretty good monthly income for most of the families of the world. 
Additionally, for the most part in this country, if we're feeling poor, it's our own fault. I've had uh, times in my life when I had to ask for help. And I'm glad I found that help. But the truth is I never should have had to ask. I mismanaged my wealth. I bought too much stuff. Couldn't pay for it. I won't ask for hands of others that have been there. But that's different than really being poor. My point is that virtually every person in this room is wealthy compared to the majority of humans. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty for the blessings that we all have. Not all that. It served no purpose. I simply want us to all realize that even the average American is insanely wealthy in relation to the most of the world. That means you don't get to ignore this point about your wealth setting itself up against your God. Jesus said you are either serving and loving your wealth or you are serving and loving your God. You know how to make sure that you are serving and loving God rather than wealth? How to show that you actually hate the idol that your wealth can and honestly sometimes does become? All you have to do is give it to Him. All you have to do is lay your wealth at His feet. Choosing God over your wealth means killing your best lamb as a sacrifice to Him. That's an old covenant reference, but the power of sacrifice and worship remains true. If you've never done anything as extreme as selling a prized possession, giving the money to God, you might be missing something. And I don't know what God is specifically saying to you, but I do know that the best way to make sure you love and serve God rather than wealth is to lay it at His feet, literally. If your heart is not right, you'll need to give until it hurts to get it right. Discipline brings pain. Correction brings suffering for a short season. And the outcome is worth it. I don't know what God is saying to any one person today, but listen carefully to the principle he's giving to us all. You're going to make a choice. You are going to make a choice when it comes to your wealth. And that choice is going to be required of you over and over again throughout your life, partly because the more you give, the more God gives you to give back. He's a wise investor. That's another sermon. But just remember this. You don't get to just do something about your wealth like one time and be in good shape from then on. No, you'll need to keep bringing your wealth to the altar. Why? Because we are wealthy, folks. And so you'll need to fear to the point of hatred what wealth can do to your heart. You'll need to fight off the mastery of wealth regularly by giving it to Jesus. That is, if you want Him to, him to be your master, your Lord. The Bible is full of warnings to the wealthy, and we dare not ignore them. You guys do read your Bibles regularly, right? Hope. Because if you do, you know about these warnings. Read Proverbs. Read James. And don't skim over all the warnings to the wealthy, because remember that compared to the rest of the world, most of us, most of us are wealthy. Maybe it's time for you to get serious about loving and serving God by giving up more of your wealth. How we should hate what wealth can do to our hearts. We should hate this so much that we take radical steps to guard against us, against it. And yes, the more you have, the more you should be concerned. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
But flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee from these things. That means run scared. Paul says, run. Be afraid. Be very afraid of ruin and destruction and all sorts of evil. Be concerned that one day it might be said of you that you actually showed hatred toward God because you loved and served wealth more than Him. Listen to me, go church. My calling is to be your spiritual shepherd, your pastor. And I preach God's word to do it. Today, I am echoing Jesus to clearly point out that you will make a choice between God and wealth. And that choice is going to come around over and over again while you're left on this earth. You will choose and there will be consequences. Where do you bank? Well, how do we do that, really? How do we bank in heaven? Haven't I told you? You do it by giving. You do it by investing financially in God's kingdom work on earth. A lot of people are stuck on the tithe. Some are still working towards that. But a lot of people are just stuck on that. That's like, okay, that's surely got to be enough, right? If you sell a house or some land or something, do you tithe on that? Well, it was a lot of money, Pastor. Yeah. Um, does God expect that? To tithe on something like that? I don't really know, to be honest. I'm not that legalistic. I mean, you could make a case, you know, well, we, we tithe as we made the income, so that's whatever. Not the point. Do you look for opportunities to make sure you're banking in heaven more than here? That's the point. Some do. And when they make those choices, it refocuses their vision and it relocates their heart. You cannot serve both God and wealth. That's what Jesus said. You will love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. That's what he said. Both God and wealth desire to be master over you. See, that's the thing. Why are we comparing God and wealth? Because both would be your master. Masters. But only one can be your master. If wealth is your master, God is not. If God is your master, wealth is not. That's what Jesus said. Some of you still think I'm out to increase the offerings of this church. It's really not my motive. What about Jesus? What was, what was he up to? What was his motive when he taught this? Was he taking donations at the end of his talk? No. People gave their tithes and offerings through the local synagogues and temple. What did Jesus think of temple worship at that time? He thought very poorly of it. He thought it was an absolute mess, far from what God would want. And he thought it was led by a brood of vipers who called themselves teachers while leading the people astray. And yet Jesus encouraged the people to keep giving in these places. That's absolutely what they were hearing in these words. That's where they gave. 
Another time, Jesus outright told them not to neglect their tithes to the temple, even though he knew their money was being misused. Why? Because he also knew that in giving, the people chose God. In giving, they chose to serve and love God over their wealth. I'll add that Jesus also worked to reform how money would be spent and what would become his church, at one point driving out the money changers. But right now, the point is that Jesus was more concerned about people's hearts. And he knew that their hearts would go wherever they put their treasure. He knew that the only way to fight the tendency to love and serve wealth will be laying down significant portions of it for the work of God regularly. You know, sometimes people think capital stewardship campaigns in churches, if you've been in church life long, you know what I'm talking about. We need to raise $2 million. We need people to give a lot. They think those are a necessary evil, maybe even an unnecessary evil. But I do believe they can be a necessary good as long as they're done right. We need to be challenged to give more, not just to give the obligatory tithe, but to make generous offerings over and above so that we do not allow our wealth to master us. And yes, that's a hint. Foreshadowing. We will need to do a stewardship campaign to buy land or a building, you know, or build a building at some point. To be honest, in a way I dread it, and in another way, I look forward to it. But ultimately, if we do this right, it will be good for us. Just remember when that day comes that the biggest point is in providing a legitimate opportunity for you to invest in God's kingdom work, thereby guarding your heart. The point will actually be spiritual growth and discipleship. And I've seen that happen. A nice byproduct will be eventually having a building to use for God's purposes. To sum up, I think the application is really pretty obvious for this sermon, isn't it? Some of us need to give more. We could have just led with that and just, now, it's probably good to go through and teach the Word. But that's where we come to. We need to give more. Why? For the sake of our hearts. You know, this message is not the one where I would tell you all the great things that are being done with your money through your church. This message isn't about convincing you that the church is the place to give. Personally, I think this church is a great investment in terms of the kingdom of God. But if you want to give to some other organizations that's doing God's work, uh, I, I'm not really worried about that today. I'm sticking to the point Jesus made and his points about your heart. So one last time, where do you bank primarily? On earth or in heaven, Jesus says that by this you show where your heart is and you show who your master is and you show who you serve and who you love. But remember, both is not an option. One great thing about this message from Jesus, there's nothing vague about it. The application is clear. In fact, I think the best way I can close this out is simply to read once more the words of our Savior. That way you can go away mad at Him instead of me. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. We should already be convicted, no? I'm sorry. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the uh, scalpel today. The sword of your spirit that cuts deeper than the marrow and, and divides and shows us where we are off. I don't know what the application specifically is for anyone here today other than myself. But I pray that you'll help us to follow through and be doers of your word, not just hearers. Understand that you've given us the ability to make choices that can greatly impact where our heart is, where our focus is, what our life is about, which leads to many other things like fulfillment and joy and just being who you made us to be and what a blessing it is to be a part of your work. But God, even before, uh, before we finish today, I, I want to take a moment now to shift gears and also pray for those who are here today and have never made the choice to be your disciple, never responded to the drawing of your spirit to say, I, I need Jesus. I, I want to trust in him. I want to follow him. I want to I've decided to follow Jesus as we saying that there's someone here or probably many here who have never really done that. And so all of this sounds so foreign, but in, the other, in another way, it should be part of, part of the gospel we share that, that you are asking for our lives. You are asking for our hearts. We have to turn away to repent of our selfish living, of our living as if we are God and turn to Jesus to help us to live a new life, to be born again, changed on the inside by the power of the cross, but given an, a power to live in a way that pleases you and in following you, which, which is real. It's real, real stuff. God, it means believing your word is true. It means Things like giving, stuff that's hard. Help those of us who have already become believers to live the way we, have, we can by your grace. And help those who have not to understand what is being asked, that what is being asked is our, our, our life, that you've, you've already given your life for us. And as we respond by giving our lives to you, we have peace with God and we can walk with God. Maybe there's somebody today that's like, okay, it's going to be tough choices. I can see that, but I'm ready today. Today, I want to follow Jesus. I want to become a follower of Jesus today. I pray that if someone's making that decision, Lord, help them to understand the first step is being public about it and letting me know, being baptized to make a statement that count me in with this whole thing of following Jesus. God, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Help us to live it.
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.